It's October, arguably one of the best times of the year. Uh, I would say that it is my favorite time of the year. It's the beginning of all of the great fall traditions. Uh, the most important being uh, Halloween. And uh, just the fact that everybody has made it okay to celebrate horror this month, to celebrate the things that scare us, to tell scary stories to each other, to go and dress up and hopefully scare other people. Maybe scare some kids and give them candy for it. This is the best time of year for a guy like me. A dude that loves horror films, a guy that directs horror movies. I love this shit. And when I get into this time of year, now that I live here in California, I, I have this sense of longing. Uh, I just miss, miss, miss the way that New England feels. Uh, right about now, the weather's changing, the temperature is dropping rapidly, the leaves are all changing on the trees, and they're falling off, and they're dying and rotting. And uh, the air smells slightly moldy, slightly crisp, and there's just this reminder. If you happen to be in a wooded area in New England, and you just sort of go out there and you walk through the woods, and you stumble across these old stone barrier walls, and maybe you find some shrines... <laughs> it's the creepy old like um pagan holiday thing that i miss when i'm out here in california california's got a lot of creepy shit you know there's a lot of creepy stuff going on like i'm sure that we can go have like a a john carpenter film experience downtown los angeles going through uh the tarp tent land you know <laughs> we can do a little prince of darkness too down there but i do miss the sleepy hollow you know the witch that vibe that comes out of new england gets me very excited um hey everybody you're listening to the brand new the late episode of in love with the process i am your host mike petchy and why is the show late today well fuck you i have been so busy for the past two weeks we have been shooting i just shot essentially what is 10 music videos so I went through the process of doing that, planning those things, um, right before uh, we got started, right before I was going to roll the show earlier this week, I just got a delivery, which is my brand new Puget system, a system that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, not allowed to talk about the system officially until next week, and I'll tell you why next week, but got that, unpacked that, and I don't know if you uh, can relate to this, but when you get a new computer, 
No matter how simple it is to take it out of the box and turn it on, and believe me, Puget builds the coolest systems. I could just open them up, turn them on, and they're running perfectly. But there's sort of the whole organization that you have to do. What am I doing with all these old files on my old system? How am I going to transfer these to the new system? How does the new drives work on this new system? And let me tell you, the new system is fucking fast. So I'm very excited about it. But it's it takes over everything, right? And then all the systems migrate. Gina gets my old system. The old system gets cleaned out. So all day yesterday, I think I started at, I don't know, nine o'clock in the morning and I looked down and it's 1030 at night. And I went, oh, fuck me. I didn't get a podcast out uh, for Tuesday morning. So that's why when you guys woke up this morning, uh, you had a little meatballs daily reminder. Because <laughs> I'm a jerk. And I didn't get to the show on time. Uh, but whatever, bear with me. Today I'm recording this. It is Tuesday morning, about 10 a.m. I'm recording this. My guest shows up in about a half hour. Um, and it's a relevant episode for this month, so I'm going to turn this fucker around really quick. i got to turn this around, and then I'm headed over to the Collider Studios. I'm supposed to be on their podcast tonight. And then I'm headed over to Adobe Max after that tonight to hang out with the Puget Boys. So it is a packed day, a busy day, um, but I'm excited to get to it. But before I do, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process, say it with me, P-O-D on Instagram. There you've seen some sneak peeks. You've seen me digging in deep because I just put back on my cinematographer hat. It had been over two years, three years since I officially took on the role of a cinematographer on a project. And I did so on this epic piece. Um, like I said, we shot like 10 pieces in two days. It's insanity. Very artful, uh, very beautiful pieces. I used a whole lot of new gear, a whole lot of new technology on this stuff. Uh, I got to play around with Aperture's lights and I fucking dig them. I really do. Um, and uh, I'm excited about this stuff. And it's all going to roll out slowly. I can't tell you who it's for. I can't tell you what the deal is yet. But it's all going to roll out over time. Uh, Gina was directing this stuff. So it was a mix of videos and photography. And we'll talk a bit about that more during the ad reads in the middle of today's episode. Um, enjoy the landscaper and the chainsaw in the background. I swear to fucking Christ, no matter what happens, it is. I live in a dead-end street. It is dead quiet until I turn on the microphones. And hopefully the noise canceling kills it. And you're like, Mike, stop complaining. No one can hear it. Can't hear that? I can fucking hear that. <laughs> uh, anyway, today, let's talk about fear. Today's episode is all about fear where does it come from? Why do we feel it? Um, and I am talking with a fear expert today. I'm talking with Neil Marshall Stevens. He is the writer of A Sense of Dread, Getting Under the Skin of Horror Screenwriting. So many of you listening to the show are horror filmmakers, horror screenwriters. You're going to find a lot of this really interesting. Um, the book gets into a detailed examination of the biological, psychological, and cultural basis of fear. What fears do we share with animals? What fears are uniquely human? What fears have we learned from our culture, from our families, from our experiences growing up? And what exactly is the difference between fear and dread? All 
really cool stuff. A Sense of Dread then combines these ideas to explore the roots of human fear and then apply them to storytelling for the screen. The Toolbox of Dread, quotes, outlines the techniques for creating terror on the page. Uh, right? I know you're in. I'm in. Uh, I haven't read the book yet. Uh, be full, tra full transparency. Guests like this, I get sent to me, suggested to me through booking agents. Um, and often uh, they will literally write me an email and go, he needs to be on the show in the next two weeks. And I can't read books that fast. <laughs> Just don't have the time. As made apparent by uh, this episode being late today. So I'm excited. I want to talk to him. I want to get all the information from him on the show. So he'll be here soon. Like I said, grab a seat grab a beer, um, and we're going to get right into it. Before I do, let's see, what else did I talk about? Oh, what else is going on? We did some cool stuff with Fuji. We also had a really great rap party. We went out uh, two nights ago, and I had a fucking fantastic time, and I'll talk about all that stuff at the end of the episode as well. So um, without further ado, let's not hold out, shall we? Let's uh, cue up uh, some scary music. Maybe I got something. Maybe a little Code Electro is kicking around here somewhere. We'll see. Uh, throw on those noise-canceling headphones. They're on already, obviously. Uh, crank them to 11. Sit back. Relax. Take some notes. But more importantly, get into the spirit of October on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Thanks for being on the show. How are you, dude? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to talk to you today, because uh, from what I understand, you're probably a bigger horror movie nerd than I am. <laughs> if, if that's possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm excited, because it's, I mean, obviously, it's the right time of year to be talking about this shit, um, and there's a sense of excitement that I have uh, as we get into the month that is okay to just be watching horror movies straight through and, and trying to find inspiration to write something new and horrific, and uh, I think you're the perfect guy to have on right now. I'm, I'm happy to be here, so... Let's let's talk scary movies. It's great. Well, fuck yeah. Well, before we get into the book and before we start talking about uh, the formulas that you have for scary movies, let's just go back to the the origins. Why scary films? Like, where did it start for you? Um, I I guess it, it goes back to my, my early childhood. I've always I've always loved scary movies. I, I from and and scary books and scary comic books that go as far back as I can remember. I I, I 
grew up on Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and mm-hmm. eerie, eerie and creepy magazine and all of that stuff. That's that was uh, that was the stuff I loved. Monster movies, and I grew up in Boston, and we had Fantasmic features and The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, and and that was that was just uh, it, I was I was naturally drawn to it. Dude, I had no so, idea. You grew up in Boston, so did I. Yeah. Oh, really? We're, we're in Boston. Uh, let's see. I was born in Brighton, and then I grew up, went to school in Framingham, and then I lived in Watertown for years. Yeah. I, I grew up in West Roxbury. So. Oh, no for, shit. No shit. Yeah. So. Very so, cool, man. Yeah. See, all these Boston people, they just gravitate towards each other. It yeah. What happens. can I say? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I was just saying at the intro of the show, because uh, I, I recently moved out to Los Angeles uh, at this point, like two or three years ago, um, I miss this time of year back in Boston, back in that area where it sort of has that dead leaf, sort of moldy air, crisp sort of ancient yeah. evil that, that seems to be yeah. lurking in the woods behind people's houses there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of that Ray Bradbury October country. Yeah. Uh, kind of territory, yes, um, and and just sort of walking home from school with the with the leaves coming down out of the trees, and <laughs> and just you you have that that feeling in the air of of uh, the seasons changing, and and there's there really is just something in the air that sense of of dark possibilities and yes you know, you know yes you don't know what corner you're going to turn and see a floating yeah, red balloon yeah yeah you know I mean? <laughs> or or something yeah. yeah or just just red eyes in the in the shadows <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that stuff man <laughs> yeah so yeah. all right so what what was uh do you remember your first horror movie do you remember the one that really kicked it for you um I, let's see the first horror i i remember uh, it, it's it's interesting. Some of the things that really terrified me, that that kind of etched their way into my subconscious, weren't horror movies. Hmm. It was actually a, a, a moment from a, a Disney film. Hmm. Um, I think called it was called Johnny Tremaine. Johnny Tremaine. It, if you if you remember, it, it, was, it was about kids during the American Revolution. Huh. And. There was a, a scene that that etched itself onto my subconscious because John Tremaine. Uh, I, the the scene I guess took place in Paul Revere. Paul Revere was the silversmith, and there was this moment. Johnny Tremaine is in the silversmith's uh, room, uh-huh. and the British are coming, and this this container of molten silver is spilled onto a table and Johnny Tremaine trips and he puts his hand directly into the burning silver, sears his hand and watching that one I couldn't have been much more than four four or five years old. It's just hideous. Yeah, The prospect of putting your hand into molten silver and scalding your hand and then sometime later, his hand has been bandaged up, and they're they're taking off the bandages. I remember and this. We don't, and we don't see it, but they're looking down in horror, because apparently his fingers have healed together. 
Yes. And then later they have to cut his fingers apart. Again, we don't see any of this, but just it, the the impression that those moments had on my horrified young mind have have lasted for I mean I'm I'm 66 now. I could have must have seen it when I was like 5. So it's for 60 years I've remembered this horrifying images from Johnny Tremaine. Um and and the the capacity for for Walt Disney to terrify and and and, and traumatize young children has lasted for all of those those years. I remember um, this movie. I just looked it up. I remember this movie. It's been so long yeah. since I've seen it, but it was like that period of time where they were doing like Robinson Crusoe or Family oh, yeah. Swiss Family yeah. Robinson, Swiss Family Swan Robinson. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it was weird narrative time uh, for them. Yeah. Yeah, wild. That's cool. What a yeah. cool, what a cool uh, influence yeah. on you. Yeah, and 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 of course, I remember a lot of those, those Allied artists movies that were that were shown on what the 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 Boston equivalent that is called Fantasmic Features. Uh huh. Um, and uh -huh. and I remember. I, I vividly remember uh, a scene from a, a quite a forgettable movie called Voodoo Island. Don't know um, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, where the, the, these developers, including Boris Karloff, are, you know, come onto this, this forbidden island, um, which is inhabited by this tribe of natives that practice voodoo and also um, man-eating plants. Mm -hmm. uh, why not? And uh, uh, the scene where this, this sort of fellow who's partially under the influence of, of this voodoo curse is stumbling through the jungle, pushes his way through, and there are these two young native girls are just sort of playing tag in, in this little clearing. Mm -hmm. And one of them steps on what looks to be just like a large fern open on the ground, and the leaves snap up almost like a, like a, a trap and grab her, and she's just devoured alive and you just see it like is almost like a little ball of fern ball and it just like you know and again this is this is back in the early 60s and so the the image of a child being devoured is is just was intensely shocking yeah to to my to my young eyes yeah um, no it's super, um, i'm looking at images of it i've never seen this yeah. boris yeah. Karloff, huh really yeah. cool yeah, and and again, a, a whole bunch of those those um, quite low budget independent movies that did those kinds of things, because obviously a big a mainstream movie, you 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 know those kinds of you know you never kill children. This doesn't happen in the same way. A very kind of goofy movie called Teenagers from Outer Space. Mm -hmm. um, uh, these teenagers who all look to be like in their thirties, but whatever, um, they, you know, they, they, uh, emerge from their spaceship. There's like a, a dog is barking at them. One of the guys takes out his ray gun, hits the dog, turns it into a dog skeleton. It's like, wow. And, and it's like, even today, never, you never show a dog being killed. It just yeah. doesn't, ha yeah, doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, doesn't su ha it's suicide. You're going to kill yeah. a dog in your and, movie. And, 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 and again, the, 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 these invaders who have this ray that 
the way in which it kills is it reduces anything they shoot at it to a skeleton. Yeah. And the, the way in which they go about essentially skeletonizing right innocent civilians without a kind of a backward glance is is was really shocking. This is a movie that was made in the I think the late 50s. Oh, yeah. When I was watching it again, I couldn't have been much more than than mid 60s i mean i was, was i couldn't have been much more than 10 years old yeah. and it, it's it's it was it was kind of like oh my god what in the world is going on because you just you're you're not used to that kind of violence um yeah. and, and 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 it's kind of this kind of casual violence is yeah uh, was 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 really kind of was shocking to my to my young sensibilities well do i get it man like when i find that as a as a filmmaker i'm constantly trying to replicate what i felt when i watched horror movies at like you know 12 13 like when i was super young i'm always trying to recreate that or trying desperately to sort of get back to that innocence of like of like seeing nightmare on elm street for the first time or seeing these movies that really fucked with me and to talk about Car uh, Boris Karloff, I just last night I've been deep into Criterion, Criterion's channel, and they're doing all the old Universal monster movies again. And it's been years. I don't think I've seen it since I was a kid, but I watched the original Frankenstein again, and I try to put myself in the mindset of that time period when I watch these movies. And sometimes you have to get over some of the special effects, or sometimes it takes you a minute to get into some of the acting. But once you're immersed into it. The whole bit when he goes and grabs the girl and throws her in the water. And there's this line that the little girl says where she goes, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. And then he just yeah. tosses her in and she drowns. You sit there and you go, and fuck, he, that must have really fucked the audience up at that point. Yeah. And, and of course, that was cut out of later releases. It wasn't, it wasn't until quite recently that that was put back in. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I, when I saw that movie when I was a kid, that, that was gone didn't see that was not in in any release of that movie wow. until qu quite recently it was put back in i, I think it was cut that. i think it was cut out in 1935 when the when the Hayes code came in oh that makes sense because I, I mean it's yeah. fucking disturbing it's really yeah. a disturbing sequence yeah 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 um yeah so well, I see. All right. So obviously we're obsessed with this stuff. This is good. Yeah. So <laughs> when did you uh, decide that you were going to start uh, uh, making stuff? So you started uh, screenwriting. As I go through, as I do lazily before I do one of these things, I look at everybody's credits and I went and looked through your IMDb and you're credited under Benjamin Carr for a bunch of stuff. Like what's the deal with that? Well, um, well what it amounts to is I wrote uh, – I became a member of the guild when I started working on um, Monsters, which was in, uh, I guess, in the, late, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, had to, to, to join. Um, and I, I stayed there. I worked as their uh, creative consultant, story editor, what have you, for around six years. Then um, they were acquired by a bunch of other companies, and then they were basically there. They were shuttered. And I didn't have any, I lived in New York and um, the number of companies that were hiring at that time was very low. And so um, I was looking around for work. Uh -huh. and, you know, I, I had a, a 
was had a wife and two kids, and um, you know was really ill suited for anything other than than screenwriting. Um, and I I had worked uh, I, I knew about uh, Charlie Band's company um, for a while. That was Empire. Then it, it transformed into Full Moon, mm-hmm. um, and so I. I I reached out to uh, the then um, their uh, the person who was in charge of production was Debbie Dion at the time, mm-hmm. and said, you know, and, and asked if if they were looking for writers. And the, she said, well, yeah, but you have to understand, we only pay like three thousand dollars for a feature, um, and since I got paid more than that for writing. Uh, an episode of Monsters, um, I said, well, that, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. Yeah. So I, I passed, and then my unemployment ran out, and then I said, well, all of a sudden, the prospect of writing a feature for $3,000 didn't seem so terrible. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, I, essentially, I had to work out a deal where I could do it outside of guild, uh, guild rules, so it's sort of they they did a lot of work internationally and they, they, so we could work something out where i could do it but it had to be under a pseudonym and you know as guild covers american work this was this it could, it could be done kind of under an international rubric and it could be and and there were other things so basically i you know for regular features they ask for tons of rewrites and it's like i couldn't do that it has to be for three thousand dollars it's got to be just just one pass and if you want uh, another pass you got to pay me more money and yeah. the, and that was for full moon that was fine and i i started do, doing work for full moon under benjamin carr and under a bunch of other pseudonyms eventually by the time i was done i'd written well over 50 it's crazy 50 70 movies for them and a lot of them got produced i mean tons of them got produced it's crazy it's crazy i think a lot of people because a lot of the people listen to the show are trying to get into this business and i don't think they understand the amount of work hard fucking work that screenplay writers do for scripts that don't even get made and you i mean and you can have a whole career being a screenplay writer that makes scripts that (laughs) don't get made Well, I mean, the reality is most most of the money I've earned over the, over the course of my career ended up writing scripts that that never got produced. Unfortunately, I mean, most of the scripts that I wrote, I mean, substantial amount of the scripts that I wrote for for Charlie Band got made, but even for Charlie Band, a lot of them didn't get made. Yeah, um, and outside of Charlie Band, um, because. Essentially, while I was writing scripts for Charlie Band, I was writing because you know, it's just it's kind of you know, I, I mean, Charlie Band's movies—they are what they are. Sure. But it's kind of it's it's soul killing just writing those movies and, and just keeping your head above water. So I would, when I had a gap in that, I would be writing spec scripts that would hopefully might be sold at a higher level. Sure. And um, and my wife, who was really a very you know. Uh, extroverted person and is great making, you know, talking to strangers. I convinced her to be my manager and she would get on the phone she, and she would go under her maiden name and, and go out and try to pitch my scripts. And, oh, okay. uh, and we had, we got one script option, which kind of led nowhere. Um, we thought it was going to be a big deal, but it turned out not to be, I mean, ultimately it, it sold, but never got made. And then 
I, I said, you know what? I, you know, I, when people ask me, I said, well, I mostly, I write horror, but I said, well, do you have like a horror spec? And I didn't. So I said, you know what? I, most of the horror movies I'm seeing around these days, they don't really scare me. I should write a movie that's real, that I think is really scary. So I wrote this, uh, I wrote a spec script called Deader, um, uh-huh. which, which I thought, you know, this is, this is a script that I think is really scary. And, and, uh, she went out and, and, uh, and after, you know, this was a couple of years after the other script kind of went nowhere and, uh, she went out with that and she went out with another script of, she didn't really like that script. She went out with this other script that took place during the, the great fire of London, which had, which in retrospect had like no chance of selling because it's this huge epic, <laughs> epic period piece. But, you know, she really liked it. She went out with those two scripts and um, uh, she she sent it to a producer. Uh, she was an executive at Stan Winston's company. Yeah. And uh, he really liked it. And he said, do you mind if I, if I just uh, slip it to a few producers that I know? And she says, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. And one of them was a producer at uh, Dimension. Yep. And he really liked it. He says, uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, slip it to my boss, uh, to what's his name? Weinstein. Not the, not the bad Weinstein, the less Bob, bad yeah, Weinstein. Bob, yeah, yeah. Bob Weinstein. And uh, we got a call that, that weekend from Bob Weinstein. It says, and to call to, to Judy, to my wife, because they, they did, she didn't know that we were related. It says, and it says the best, this is the best fucking, I'm like halfway through, this is the best fucking script I ever read. Can you come in on Monday? And so, and so we came in on Monday and they offered us like half a million dollars for the script. And That's we, wonderful. You know, and it, it's not like we were doing so great off, you know, off of Charlie Band. So from, that sale and and it also because of a few other places that it was slipped it kind of went everywhere went around hollywood and it was like for like for like 10 minutes i was like the 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 hot the exciting hot flavor in in, in hollywood sure and i got we got i got an agent and i got a whole bunch of other deals and it was like we were off to the races from that sale so did that movie get made which one was this debtor Uh, it was called debtor and I was, we were in development on it for like 18 months and we had a director attached and yeah. And then it, it kind of died yeah. for reasons I'm not quite sure of, but then it got, it got revived and it ended up being a Hellraiser debtor. A while. So did they just put yeah. the, did they just stamp the, uh, the Hellraiser franchise onto it? It wasn't originally. They, 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 no, it was, it had nothing to do with Hellraiser to start with. They uh, they brought in another writer. They offered it to me, and I I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to. Yeah, didn't think it made sense. So they brought in another writer, and uh, it was rewritten as a Hellraiser movie. It has uh, there are some parts of it that are, you know, that that are like the original Debtor. Yeah, but it, it's I mean it's okay. I mean it's 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 I I kind of I wish that it had been made as 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 its own self but what do you what are you gonna i'm not gonna complain i made i made yeah you made some cash on it i made i made a i made made a it's like oh boo-hoo poor you yeah i'm not gonna you know it's it's, (laughs) but uh, i i I, if you know i all all of my all all of the disastrous experience of my life should be like that i made a lot of money (laughs) i mean really it made it, it really made my career 
Well, so it's always fascinating to me. Well, 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 look, two points here. One, yeah. um, I'm always interested when when like they did it with the Cloverfield stuff, where you know they get an idea and then they like the script, but then they're like, there needs to be some sort of brand IP attached to this thing. So let's stamp Hellraiser on and put Pinhead in it, and then yeah. good to go. Yeah. Um, but then two, I'm also interested in sort of the life of a screenwriter when you're dealing with this stuff, because it takes so much for you to imagine these worlds, to understand these characters, to vicariously live through these characters and to, to, and to do all this stuff and then not to have the movies made. Um, do you, I'm sure it's still disheartening when that happens, but do you have a different outlook when you're writing these things? Do you write these things with the idea that they're most likely not going to get made? And are, are you getting some sort of, are you getting some sort of fuel from just writing the script? Is it the accomplishment in the final draft for you? Or like, where does it, um, how do you stay well, safe? Uh, you, you, I'm, I'm, I'm always telling myself, it's like, yeah, look, you always have, it's like, don't worry about whether it gets made or not. And it's like, don't, don't like invest yourself in, in the process. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, it's been like 30, 35 years. In the end, you you always are invested in the process. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when, and, and the notes come in from the producers and it's like, you read the notes and it's like, Jesus Christ. Didn't, <laughs> did, didn't, didn't they even read the damn script? What the hell are they thinking? Don't they? And it's like, and I have to say, stop. Slow down. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take a deep breath. It's like it's a part of the process. You because I I I would write responses to notes early in my career, and it's like and, and, they, and my agent was like, would go back and say, "What what the hell are you doing? Don't <laughs> don't write no, no, What are you do? never never send notes like this ever? It's like this is you resigning from the project. No, don't do this. And, and it's like you know, and I. I I and I created this reputation about someone who was really difficult to work with early on, which didn't do me any good. Right? And, you know, it's just it's just me being like a, a, a schmuck who was like venting at producers. And it's like and it's never it's never helpful to do that. If everyone finds yourself, it's like you can just write those notes and then put them away, and then write you know you know, start, write write a better resp- a more diplomatic and sensible response. Just. Never send those notes to anyone. You yeah, know, it's just, it's no, there's no nothing, nothing, nothing to be gained by doing that kind of thing. It's smart advice. Yeah. It's smart advice because yeah. yeah. I think it hurts. You know, I've had notes come in for stuff, and you just you're, you're like, "What the fuck are you reading? Like, are you even looking at this? Did you open the script? Like, okay, great. You went and saw Hereditary this weekend. Does everything need to be fucking Hereditary this week? Like, uh, yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? I, I, yeah, I know exactly. What yeah. you're and it's like, you know, and there comes a point where I'm saying, have I? Am I ever going to get a set of notes where I'm being asked to put something in the script that is not already there? Yeah. <laughs> where, where I don't have to say regarding your your note your, your note. Look on page twelve. It's there. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Have your assistant give you better notes after they read the script, please. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yes, but, yeah, yeah. I get and, it. I get it. I get it. It's part of. The, I think it hurts so much because we are so invested with it early on, and then there is this sense. 
I don't want to sound like the guy that's like all notes suck because I've had great fucking notes. I've had notes that have really sort of blown the the lid open on an idea and, and been like, holy shit, that's a very educated. Okay, yeah, fuck yeah. And then yeah. The, the movie becomes better. So there's definitely a blend and a mix that needs to happen between both folks for a good movie. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I mean, I've I've worked with with producers and execs and directors who actually understand the material and who who understand where it is and where it needs to be and i've also worked with the other kind of executive <laughs> producer who who you know and and also i've worked with producers who know what they want yeah and it's you know uh Joel Silver, uh, who I worked with on Thirteen Ghosts, was like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, it's like, and you know, and, and again, I, I, I after um, after Debtor, I there were a bunch of projects that I got involved in. That was one of them, and you know, and I'd pitch something and say, "Great, come on in, pitch it to pitch it to Joel," and I pitches it and says, "No, I don't like it." And then he proceeded to tell me what he wanted done. Mm-hmm. And 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 is you gonna write this down? I says no. I, I got you. I understood it. And it was very it was a very straightforward take on how he wanted the sequel to go. That's what he wanted, and and he he didn't really he, he wasn't interested in what what I particularly wanted. So if you understood what he wanted, <laughs> he he was very straightforward about it. Yeah. Uh, he he wasn't he wasn't interested in being diplomatic or hurting my feelings and that was fine you know and it was it was great working with someone who could simply tell you what he wanted what he liked what he didn't like yeah and just say okay now go write it um for sure you know it's, it's so difficult dealing with people who whatever it is they love it and the next thing you know you're fired yeah yeah right Right, right. Or they just don't have a sp- they don't have an opinion. They don't really have a spine, and so they, you know, think, like, they, 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 they need they like someone it. else to tell you what they like. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that must have been. Was it a fast write? Thirteen Ghosts after after that. Um, it, it 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 was a write that went reasonably well until the director came on board uh-huh. with a whole set of of notes that were kind of uh, all over the place. Uh, <laughs> You know, us, I mean, us directors could be a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, it, it depends. I've worked with directors who, where I worked, where I mean, Charlie Band, for the most part, is is a very straightforward director. He, it's like, again, he will want certain things, usually for technical reasons, or, or for some other purpose, and he'll tell you what he wants. You put that stuff in. He doesn't care anything about the rest of it, uh, you know. Um, and, and, but there were times with Charlie where he had certain notes that I, I think that I disagreed with, and he said fine. But then he went ahead and did it anyway, and I think it kind of messed up the project. But for the most part, if if he leaves you, you know, when he leaves you alone. The result is is usually is usually fine. Yeah. So it it it, it kind of depends. But uh, I mean, I've I've worked with with quite good directors, and I've worked with directors who kind of run off and do their own thing. 
And it's, it's odd, and I don't know what your experience has been, but there are directors who understand the material, mm-hmm. and there are really directors who don't understand the material as well, at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean... Yeah. Well, dude, I mean, that's... So, I don't consider myself a screenplay writer at all. So, like, when I wrote... I mean, yeah. When I yeah, wrote yeah. my stuff, uh, when I was starting, and I, I wrote a lot of the shorts, I did it out of necessity. So, I, I went through the process of playing these things together and, and I've recently teamed up with a screenwriter Will Simmons that I love and we do all this work together and it's always a fascinating thing I, I think I came to realize the power of what the true power of screenwriting besides you know being able to you know birth this story and and make sense of an idea and make it into a narrative and and flush out these characters like all the stuff that we assume I, more importantly I think the ultimate job of a screenwriter is to write something that you read on the page that's fast, that's intriguing, and that's interesting and gets everybody fucking interested to begin with. And, and, and that's just it. And I always say to my screenwriting buddy, I'm like, our job, it's actually technically our job when we get your script is that I literally go through and cross out all your fucking descriptions. <laughs> like I literally go through and cross out all that stuff and when I hand it to an actor so that an actor doesn't feel restricted by what you've written. And so it's it's a heartbreaking thing to see, but then I also understand that all that talent and all that skill was there to get the movie started, was there to get the movie going, was there to in- inspire ideas out of everybody, from the producers to the investors to the actors. So it needs to be really fucking great. Um, but most of the time, all that stuff gets tossed, which is, it's it's a brutal job, man, like screenwriting, I feel like, when I see it from the outside, you know? Yeah, I don't know if you agree or disagree. You got real quiet. Well, yeah, well, well. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, the point is, it it depends because the actor doesn't need to see. The actor needs to see the lines that he's he's got he's got to say. He doesn't care about that other stuff. Yeah. But if you're talking, you know, if you send the same script to the production designer, they need what to he's going to yeah. what he's going to do is cross out all that talking because yeah. he doesn't need to see that. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like true. He, he wants to see all that description because that's going to that's going to inform the stuff that he's got to do. It's the true. same way. It's like the guy who's the sound designer. He's going to cross out everything but the sound. That's all he's interested in. <laughs> so it's like it's like you know the, the the stuff that you write has different levels of importance to different people in the, in the production staff. So yeah, it's fine if you, I, I, it's fine if you cross, if it's going to the actors, in fact, very much, a lot of times an actor will cross out everything except for their own lines. They don't even, they don't, they don't care. It's like, give me the ins and the outs from the other actor. I don't even care what, what they're saying. Yeah. I just, it's like, just, it's like the, the, the three lines before my speech. And then the, that's all I care about. <laughs> you know, because because I I need to know when when I have to start paying attention. That's all I'm interested. It's like, you know. Well, and uh, but then I have nothing but like sympathy for the poor screenwriter, especially especially when you get notes, and, and we've got these notes where someone will say, "Oh, look, all we need you to do is uh, I don't like this one scene here, so we'll just yank that scene." And I just hear the screenwriter go <sighs> because in his head that triggers such a fucking like epic rewrite that happens where it's like well if that yeah. scene doesn't happen then all this shit doesn't fucking make sense and the producers don't give a fuck they're just like yeah just well I, I mean and and 
you see, that's why it's it's important to have at least directors who understand what what scenes are doing. Yes, yes. I, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, I I've directed a script that I wrote, mm-hmm. and so you know, and it was again a very short shooting schedule, and you know, and so there comes a time when things have got to, it's like, all right, things have got to get cut. And you start asking, all right, what, what's in this scene that I need? Yes. And it's like, and you start going through it as well. Okay. This piece of information we already did over here. So I could do without that. This piece of information. Well, I can just put a line in this scene over here and this, all right, I can, I can lose it. I can lo- all I need is a line over here and I can lose this scene. Yep. But if you're if you're not clued into the script, you don't have the ability to make those kinds of cuts on the fly. Um, yeah. You know, and it, and it's it's one of the things um, I I tell because I teach class. There's there's there was a making of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, it, it took me a long time to actually track down this particular featurette. And there's a scene with Steven Spielberg at the uh, Lost City of Tannis <laughs> location. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're, they're, he's kind of in the midst of shooting this sequence. It's this big chase sequence in the midst of that location with with Salah and with Nazis and all people. And it's like, and you're, you're watching and you say, I don't remember that scene from the movie and it wasn't in the movie. <laughs> and, and they're having a conversation and saying, it's like, look, if, if we have to, if we have to reshoot this after lunch, it means we got to hold all these guys and read and do this and do that and do the other thing. And he makes the decision right then to cut the scene. Yep. And it's not in the movie. And you have to know that this is minimally hundreds it must have been hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. and the ability to make that kind of decision means he's got to know Mm -hmm. that they can lose that whole scene and that the movie's going to stand up yeah yeah that's the that's where you want to be I, like I've had smaller cases like that on set and situations, and when you're able to make those things, they're scary. They're scary things to make, but it really just comes down to prep, dude. It really comes yeah. down to prep. Yeah. It, it's it, it's, like, it's knowing that story, yeah. Knowing what you what you need and what you don't. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Like yeah. when I prep out a script, I'll go through the process of prepping stuff because I've spent so many years producing, and I know how much time takes on set. I know when I'm pushing the limits of what my days are going to be, and the first thing I do is go, okay, what am I potentially going to lose today? And through that process, I'm not I'm not giving it up yet. But what are my backup plans? Okay, here are yeah. my backup plans. Here are my backup plans. And that's fucking prep. That's all that is. That's yeah, you sitting yeah. down ahead of time and going like, okay, what works and what doesn't work? I don't necessarily think you know those answers. I don't think that you're a genius with it. You just you just have spent the time early on going, I understand what the core values of this script are. I understand what the core arc of my main character is. And how do I get there? And there's sometimes there are faster ways to get there. I've often found that when I've condensed things, 
they've been my more favorite fucking scenes because they surprise yeah. me. And I'm like, holy mm-hmm. shit, where did this come from? This is awesome, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's just, you know, and, and a lot of times it's finding those creative solutions right then and there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the juice. That's the fucking juice, man. When yeah. you're on set, you feel it. You got that crew around you that you entrust. And you all look at each other and you go, guys, we're going to change this shit. It's going to be great. And we just do. Yeah. And you go, yeah, that's why we're here. This is what this yeah. is. It's this moment. Yeah. So. Yeah, man. Well, let's continue on to, let's talk about the book, man. So a sense of dread. Okay. Why did yeah. you write the book? How did, how did this start? Um, well, I, I've, uh, I've been working in horror, um, again, for most of my career. I started, uh, uh, I, I was approached by a former uh, student, uh, someone I knew from uh, NYU grad film. Uh, uh-huh. She was uh, she was running a program at uh, David Lynch. Uh, uh, David Lynch run, is running a program at um, MIU, which is Maharishi uh, International University. Oh, cool! Um, so she's she's running the, she's running their screenwriting program, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Apparently, she had a whole bunch of students who were interested in horror, and she knew from knowing me back at, at NYU that and that I was interested in, in horror, and she, she wanted to know if I was if I wanted to come in and mentor those that group of students. And I said, oh, "Sure, that was that would be that would be uh, a very interesting experience." Mm-hmm. So I, I mentored that group of students, and I stayed on. Mentoring not only students who are interested in horror, but just students in general, um, and and a lot of students over you know in the course of the years of that teaching that program um, were interested in horror. Um, I also have, have taught at Screenwriters University and, and mentored those students, and in the course of doing that, you have to work up. Um, uh, syllabus where you, you you know I found that I, I had to sort of lay out issues of, of just what it is that makes for a scary screenplay and what the basis of of, of, of creating horror is mm-hmm. and I was I was out there for the start of the program and I, I was speaking to some of the other instructors there who had also who had written books at various times and uh they suggested you know you should really you should really consider writing a book about all this stuff, and they had a publisher and and I said well that, that actually sounds sounds like a good idea, hmm. so I, I worked up a proposal I sent it to uh, uh, I sent it to the publishers and they said uh, yeah that does sound like a good idea, um, I mean they had over the years, um, you know there had been other books on on horror. Mm-hmm. But um, my emphasis was specifically about where where the human emotion of horror comes from, what it is that we find scary, and why. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it it is a kind of education on the emotion of horror, why we feel various kinds of of, of fear, where it comes from, and how we can then apply that those lessons to our to our writing. Um, so that's uh, that's the name of, of the, the 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 book, a sense of dread. Yeah. 
Okay, it is time to take a break. It is time to talk about the sponsors. And uh, you know what? Let's talk a little bit about the fun gear and the fun equipment that I have been using, I used last week. I made this comment. So we we uh, had a solid crew put together. Really great team of people. Um, a lot of friends from the past, a lot of folks that had been on some of my shoots uh, from 10 plus years. You know, my buddy Mike Tran, uh, was on uh, fucking uh, 12 cam. He was also on uh, the Dead Can't Be Distracted, the Punisher stuff. So it was really nice to have that comfort around me. And uh, Mike came on on this job in an assistant camera position, which is something that he normally doesn't do, but I asked him to do it because I know he's got the brain for it. He really does. He's got the brain and the work ethic to do it correctly. And the both of us were messing around with new gear brand new gear, stuff that I had never shot with before. Um, I had had my hands on an old school Aerie Alexa Mini uh, when I did the Sam Adam commercials. I think I did a day with that, but we were using the LF. And a lot of the chip and the format stuff starts to get really confusing, right? Until you put your hands on it, until you switch to the different settings. Am I shooting this open gate? Am I shooting this S35? There's all sorts of weird settings that we have to go through. And because we're in California, we have access to so many great old school vintage lenses. And you know my philosophy. My philosophy has always been, I see the world through a filthy windshield. That's how I want to shoot the world. Dirty, gritty, nasty. That's what I like. I feel like a lot of these brand new lenses on the market, they have their place, I suppose, if you're doing commercials and stuff. But they're too crisp. They're too clean. You're shooting with them and you're getting filters and putting filters over them and you're trying to degrade that image because it pulls me out. Suspension of disbelief is destroyed if the image is too hyper real, right? Do you guys feel that way? It just starts to look too crisp. Um, so we did the hard hunt and we were looking for some old vintage lenses. What did we shoot with? We shot with uh, old school cooks. There's a name for them and my brain is like half working today. Pancheros. So we shot with the old school Panchero lenses. These are lenses that were manufactured in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, I was looking for a lot of like those really interesting characteristics that you get from it, right? Some like really sort of faded edges, odd focus, maybe some flaring, but mostly that stuff. And, and we enjoyed it. We slapped, we slapped these lenses on that were built, were built for uh, a 35 millimeter frame and they're projecting on a digital chip that is the equivalent of a medium format film strip, right? So it's much bigger. So um, it was fascinating to see the coverage that they had. And it was pretty interesting. I was surprised that all the lenses above 40 still covered that full chip. When you started to get under 40, you started to actually see the lens housing and everything else in the front of it. It was a little too obnoxious, but really fun to play with. Really cool stuff. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, um, I think they're eventually going to become sponsors of the show, but they lent me, the guys over at Aperture lent me a bunch of their lights. We ended up messing around with a 600. I think it was a 600 daylight. Uh, I have a 1200, which I really like, which I was putting into uh, six by six grids and turning into book lights. Uh, really enjoyed that. And then there's a really great um, what do you call it? Like a softbox. It's almost like an octobank. That's for the front of that, which I enjoyed. 
Um, and the spotlight feature that fits on the 600, which acts like the old ETCs. You remember when I did the ad reads for the ETCs, those spotlights? Well, now you could put that same structure on the front of a more powerful light. And it's very useful for us. Very useful. And you're going to see, uh, check out my Instagram today. I think I posted uh, me and Ian Spencer doing some tests with that spotlight. Really cool stuff. I'm very impressed with not only the quality that comes off of those units, and they're not a sponsor yet. I'm, I'm very impressed with the quality that comes off those units, but I'm also impressed with the way that they're manufactured and how rugged they are. Uh, Aperture lights are pretty fucking rad. And we're in conversations right now. If you're listening, Aperture, let's seal the deal. I mean, come on and be the lighting sponsor for the show because I think you guys are fucking fantastic. Um, but uh, first up, good friends, supporters of the show, Fujifilm. Now, Fujifilm, Gina and I have been messing with Fujifilm for the past, I don't know, four or five months. Um, and Gina went deep in this recent project with it. She was shooting with the large format, the GFX 100S. And because of its light sensitivity, for the first time ever, we're shooting medium format uh, at the same ISO as the video. And that's the biggest problem with a lot of shoots right now. And if you guys work in the industry, you know, the clients are like, can we shoot video and film at the same time? But I want uh, my uh, photos to look perfect on billboards. They need to be medium format. And most of the time when that happens, you're usually working with the old Hasselblads or maybe you're using the old phase ones. When you hit a point where you go, ah, I got to be at 400. I got to at least be at maybe a four, five, six for focus to make sure that I'm getting the person in focus and the entire shoot has been lit for 800 ASA at 48 frames per second. I don't have enough fucking light. That's the big issue when you're doing photo and video at the same time. Clients that are listening to the show, that is the big issue, is that when you're doing that stuff, it's two different, it's two different ISOs, so two different film speeds that you're dealing with because most uh, cameras are rated uh, at 800 these days, especially in Alexa and everybody's shooting Alexa. And so what you would have to do in order to do the old school photography stuff, you would have to bring in larger lights, more power, bigger crew, and then essentially ND down the uh, Alexa down to a 400. So that way the lighting that you're using on set could still be used with the old school Hasselblads, unless you're shooting with the new Fuji stuff. I really enjoy the Fuji camera that Gina did. It's the GFX 100, right? GFX 100S. Um, it's very susceptible to low light. She got some solid imagery from that. Beautiful uh, lenses, large format, soft focus. Um, and uh, she was able to shoot with the same lighting setup that I was doing for video. Um, and thanks to uh, Victor and Michael over at Fuji, they have been uh, hooking us up and lending us lenses and sort of walking us through all the new technology with it. It's a very intense camera. There are so many options for it. And you, I'm learning something new every day. It's, it's fascinating. You can dive deep into the menu settings just to change the speed of your manual focus. It's a fucking interesting camera. Uh, and I really need to spend a lot of time with it to understand it. But Gina's wrapping her head around it. I just looked at her raw images yesterday as we loaded them on to the Puget. And um, they look great. So 
lots of fucking content coming. It's all going to roll out over the next year. Uh, really cool stuff. Speaking of Puget, are the boys, the guys that are sponsoring the show, the guys that are buying me beers in about five hours. I'm excited to hang out with them. Um, they just sent me a new system. I can't tell you about it. I'm not supposed to say shit until after the 20th. Those of you who work in the industry or are computer nerds, you might know why, but I can't tell you shit till after the 20th. So I'm not telling you anything, okay? I'm just saying that I just got a brand new Puget system. I plugged it in. I'm staring at it right now. It's running Windows 11, which took me a second to get used to, but it's fast. It is fast. It is fast. It is fast. And I am fucking excited about it. I cannot wait to do all these edits on it. So uh, that's why I was late getting the show out because I spent all day yesterday setting things up. Uh, I'm almost there. I had to install Paragon HFS Plus on it. Those of you who don't know, that is the software I use that enables me to read and write Mac drives. So just because I'm PC doesn't mean the rest of the world's PC. Um, and so the PC has figured out a way for me using HFS Plus to actually work on Mac drives that are shared to me from other folks. So if I'm working with a color place, if I'm working with a sound place, and they're all still on Macs, they go, put your own PC. And I go, don't worry about it. I got you. I'll write in your format. I'll send you a drive in your format. You don't have to even fucking worry about it. We got you. You know what I mean? So really great stuff. If you're in the market for a new Puget system, head on over to PugetSystems.com. If you're in the market for a new edit computer, Michael, Jesus. Head over there, check it out. They build machines based upon the software you use. You want to build a new Photoshop machine. You want to build a new um, fucking uh, Premiere machine. You want to build a uh, DaVinci Resolve machine. These guys know how to do it. They benchmark test everything. Um, they put together these amazing machines with custom support systems inside. They actually uh, laser cut uh, these support systems that will hold all your hardware in place and enable it to be safely shipped. So cool. They don't have to like load it with foam. I don't know if you ever bought a computer from somewhere else and it's like loaded with this foam bit so that the computer parts don't move. They build these sturdy motherfuckers that are super quiet. I love their machines, man. I really do. Speaking of Photoshop, this is an interesting little thing. How many of you are using these Fuji cameras or these new cameras that have very, very large file formats? Right, so when you run these things out, you're dealing with a PSB because they're they're bigger than a PSD, a Photoshop file. It goes to a PSB, which is a file that could save over two gigs when you put it on your computer. Um, these files can take forever to save, especially if you're doing multiple layers in Photoshop. You could be sitting there on a save uh, that takes like 15 fucking minutes, and you want to be saving your progress as you work, right? Uh, well, I thought that uh, because I had a beefier machine, it would go quicker. Turns out it's because when they're saving those files, it's also compressing those files at the same time. So there is a setting, and I wish I had it open in front of me, and I don't, but I'll find it for you. There is a setting in how you manage your files where you can actually go in to Photoshop and click off the compression. Actually tell it not to compress the files while you're saving and it'll save much faster. The files are twice as large, but when you're working on a Photoshop document, you want those saves to happen quicker. So we're gonna try that out. I just talked to Gina about it this week. We're gonna see if we could save those faster. That new Photoshop option. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see if we can do that. I forget the settings for it. I wish I had them in front of me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I bring something up and I don't have it. Just do a search for it and we'll try to post something. But if you do a search for uh, clicking it off in your settings, uh, dude, I, I can't do this quick. Oh, actually, hold on. Let's see. Photoshop's opening up super fast. Oh, I can't sign in because I'm signing in on my laptop. Anyway, <laughs> it's fucking shitty, Reed. <laughs> I will put it up there and I'll have it there for you at some point. Um, okay, also supporting the show, friends over at Jambox, jambox.io, the place to go to get music for your content, licensed music. Um, I have had nothing but great things to say about these guys all year. Um, we just finished doing a piece. Am I allowed to talk about uh, the Boohoo Man piece? Yeah, just tell you who Yeah, we did this piece for Boohoo Man. What's that? It's out. Is it out? I mean, the piece isn't out, but Okay, so it'll be out. We did a piece for Boohoo Man, uh, and uh, we ended up finding... It was very difficult to find music for that because the client was very specific about what he liked on set, and unfortunately, everything he liked on set was like 80s pop hits. <laughs> like Marvin Gaye, 70s pop hits. It was like, how the fuck am I going to find Marvin Gaye licensed? Um, but what I was able to do on Jambox is find tracks that have the same sort of rhythm uh, have the same sort of vibe and I took like two or three different tracks took the stems from those tracks and were, was able to build a custom song that felt like one of the Marvin Gaye tracks or felt like it belonged in the 80s it was a whole mix of things you ever get those notes from a client where you're just like sure cool you want a house on the moon yeah I could do that what do you got like five bucks yeah we'll get you there and then meanwhile you're trying to build a fucking moon house out of construction paper but anyway, yeah, we did it uh, with music from Jambox. Thankfully, they're there. It helped me solve a problem from a client. You hear me rumbling. But uh, it worked. Um, and we'll post that stuff up. So head on over to jambox.io right now. They have amazingly affordable plans. Uh, if you're just a podcast creator, there's a great plan for you. I use the $19.99 a month commercial plan, which enables me to use their stuff for anything. Gives me access to stems, which I needed badly on that job. Um, and they also have a student plan as well. What's up? I don't know how you can talk shit. They're the best clients. Never come back with those. Who am I talking shit about? You just talk shit. Uh, that was the dumbest note. No, no one gave you a note. There the, were no notes. That was a note. What was a note? That you wanted me to use Marvin Gaye music. No, I wanted you to be inspired by it, not angry by it. Oh my God. Well, I only do good work when I get mad. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I'm not talking shit. Maybe I'm talking shit about you because you were the director on that. Maybe. I had some really fucking dumb notes from this director. <laughs> now we were able to figure it out, thankfully, uh, because of Jambox. The options were there. Um, so, yeah, man. Who else am I missing? Oh, last but not least, Indie Pro. We had a winner a couple weeks ago. Someone walked away with a battery set up for a Blackmagic camera. So I think he had the Blackmagic 4, but technically I think it would work for the 6 and the 6 Pro, which I have as well. Um, but we uh, were able to set him up with a battery plate, um, a battery itself, a charger for that, and uh, all the cables he needed to power his Blackmagic externally and potentially a monitor and anything else he's using. Um, head on over to IndiePro.com. I just saw on their Instagram page um if you check that out i think it's at at indie underscore pro or something indie pro <sighs> terrible today um but they have a dual battery setup 
where normally if you had like a v, v mount or gold mount on, let's say you have uh, a battery option on your um, aperture light, right? I know there's one for sure on the 600, right? Well, with this dual mount thing, on that same mount, you can actually put two batteries. Doing a terrible job describing it. Head on over to Indie Pro and check it out. It's fucking great. Twice the amount of power on that same light means you don't have to touch it. Um, if you head on over to IndieProTools.com, use the promo code LOVE20 at the checkout and receive a discount 20% off your entire first order from IndieProTools.com. These guys provide power needs for your pro video DSLR cameras uh, with a wide selection of V-mount, gold mount batteries and chargers, battery adapter plates, that's what I was talking about before, regulation cables, and many other unique power accessories. These solutions are compatible for the most popular brands in the market today, such as Canon, Sony, Blackmagic, Panasonic, and numerous others. Um, so head on over to IndieProTools.com, check it out. Like I said, is that it's a, it's a double battery setup that you can attach onto one uh, battery port, which is nice, right? And these things last a long time. I was using them on our small HD monitor on set, and uh, we didn't have to change them that much, much. And it was also running the Teradek at the same time, so it was pretty cool. All the way around, great unit. Check them out, IndieProTools.com. All right, that's it. Let's get back to the show. Do you think <clears throat> ultimately is it is it uh, is it a biological thing with us? Is it is it from experiences with us? Like, where do you think that the it, it, it run? It, it comes from a bunch of, of different locations. There there certainly is a biological basis for certain kinds of, of experiences of horror, um, but there are there are also um, there's a there are personal basis, there are cultural basis for horror. Um, Certain kinds of horror uh, comes naturally. Mm -hmm. We are afraid of certain. We we share certain kinds of fear universally. Uh, I mean, it's not always universal, um, but much of it is. There are, there are certain basic things um, that that we share. Um, well, and there so are other like, kinds like of. Sorry, if you're talking I'm about sorry, like sharp. If you're talking about like sharp teeth, like fangs, that, like, that's more of a biological thing, uh, right? Uh, like, well, well, let, let me give you an example. Uh, we we fear having our teeth broken. We huh. fear damages to the extremities, damage to the front of our faces, having our huh. things like having our our nose broken, having our teeth broken, having our fingers broken, having our fingernails or toes or feet damaged. 
those Ugh. those are things that are are built into us. Hmm. Um, anything anything like that. I, I remember um, there was uh, I, I knew a, a fellow from my undergraduate school who had um, his front teeth were were false. He had uh, caps in his front teeth, mm-hmm. and uh, I just didn't, I just happened to ask him. It's like, well. What happened to your front teeth? Where did they go? And he said that when he was he was a kid, he was he would be doing this funny thing where he would just like stand up in bed and <laughs> fall over flat onto his face, <laughs> and he miscalculated, and he fell over flat, and his face hit the bed the the, the bedstead, and he cracked right in his front of his teeth and knocked his front teeth out. Ah, oh, I'm crazy. And yeah. it's, just, it's like the very the memory of that just has stuck in my head. It's just such a horrifying image. Oh, I was talking about this the other day about <laughs> about uh, trauma, like mental trauma from injuries. And I, when I was a kid, I was young, young. I think I was in like ah man, maybe third grade, fourth grade. Um, I got tackled in a, at the on the playground, and I broke my big bone on my leg. And, and I remember yes. that fucking, it's like foundational pain. Like, yeah. like it's like the bones. Yeah. And I've felt that a few times in my life, like scraping blades against bone. That bone pain is so yeah. specific. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will, I will tell you something else. Uh, I remember uh, I knew a woman in, in college as well um, who, who mentioned at some point, uh, who had like shoulder length hair, and she mentioned that at one point she had very long hair. She had it like hair that went all the way down to her waist. Mm. And I said, "Well, why why did you cut it off?" And she said, uh, "At one point, uh, her hair had gotten tangled in a fan, ah. <laughs> and like in a, in a big standing fan." And I said, "Oh, that's why," and and that. That is also uh, that is such a hideous image. The yes. idea of your hair being tangled—that's oh. a horrifying image. But we, these are these are things that that makers of movies have used. I think everyone remembers the scene from um, Chinatown mm-hmm. where uh, the nose gets slit. Yes, it's, yeah. uh, it's incredibly horrifying. Um, it's just kind of, you know, the guy says, well, let's put this, puts the blade in the nose. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of scary. And then, Choof! yeah. And it's like, and blood splatters. And it's like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're just so horrified because the idea of, of the, the nose being injured. Um, and, and any kind of, any kind of injury to the eye, injury to the nose, breaking of teeth. Um, as an American history X, yeah. Oh Jesus, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's horrifying. In I believe in, in movies Runaway Train, and John Voight is is grabbing onto the, the 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 those big locks that hold the train the trains together. I forget what the hell they're called. And they it's like the train goes around a curve, and like his little fingers crushed. The blood splashes. It's just like oh my god. It's, and again, it's it's. I mean, is it because it's so relatable? Like, what is it? Like, it, it's it's we're 
those things are our fingers, our teeth, our face, our toes are highly enervated. Mm. There are lots of nerve endings in those places. Uh-huh. We are we are wired to to respond to damage to those parts of our bodies. Mm. So we we react that way when we see those parts of the body damaged in others. I never, it, it, I never really thought about that. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, uh, in the same way that a, a great many people respond very vis, uh, you know, viscerally to the sight of blood, to the red blood, people faint at the sight of blood. Uh, it's the same thing. Thing. It's it's built in. On the other hand, there is no automatic reaction to fire huh. you see a f- people child will see a fire and will just reach in and say, oh it's a fire it's, ah! it's that has to be a learned response because it, it's not it's it's come too recently into human history oh is that what it is so for us to have an automatic to have us a, a built-in response to it in the same way that we have a built-in response to you know Fascinating. To damage, damage to fingers and toes. So you think it's, but you think that's coded in the DNA at that point. Though, I think, right? yeah, I think, I think that it's biological. Yeah. I mean, for a, for a long time, people thought that that fear of heights was biological, but it, they've they've done t- tests on it more recently. I had to change my, I had to change that part of the book because I found <laughs> out there were there were they they they'd done more tests on it. It's not it's not biological. What is it? It's learned, it's, it's learned behavior. Oh, weird. We we learn we learn to avoid hides. Weird. Um, so, I mean, there are a whole there are a whole bunch of fears that seem to relate to balance issues, loss of balance. Mm-hmm. I think the heights heights relate to that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and and conversely, things like. Being stuck in narrow spaces, being stuck in wide spaces, they both seem to have something to do with with balance issues. Oh, it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's um, true. It's very true. Um, it's very and, true. And also, of course, there's anything that relates to loss of of autonomy, loss of control, mm-hmm. um, is 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 something that affects a great many people. Fear of flying is one of those loss of control issues. Um, yeah, because right, you strap yourself in and then you're giving it up. Yeah, yeah. And, and then some someone else is in the driver's seat. Yeah, uh, and uh, and we find that terrifying. Yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting when you think about it, you know, because ultimately at that point, it you're it's a fear of loss in one way or another, right? Your fear, yeah. you're you're gonna lose your teeth, you're gonna lose your nose. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, one of it is simply it's it's biology has has programmed us to protect ourselves, and in the other way, it's a higher level system that's that's organized that allow us allows us to control and presumably protect ourselves. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but um, and and of course it, it's you know there are also. Uh, you you step up from that to to cultural issues, where we uh, 
we have issues relating to protection. You know, why is it, for instance, that uh, threats to women, threats to children, threats to the helpless, mm. we find particularly disturbing? Because within communities, we we look to protect certain kinds of individuals, people who who we deem to be. Well, I, I hate to say helpless because women aren't really helpless, but no, but th- I mean, those who are less less well able less well able to defend themselves against physical attacks. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's as you're as you're going through these through these different uh, these different terrors, I start to think back to <laughs> to hearing what producers want which is interesting i feel like a lot of like the like the the biological like the encoded in our genes fear of noses and fingers that ends up being runs the line of being on the gore side of horror and i think that uh, there's a lot of producers that i've talked to especially with projects that i'm doing that are like is this going to be like gross <laughs> or is this going to be elevated <laughs> and so when it, it seems um, like a, what they consider elevated to be more of like the social issues slash uh you know what we were just talking about as opposed to like it's those scenes in those movies where someone's going to break a nose and maybe it's because it's, it's triggering so viscerally with them that they're like ah, i don't know that makes me uncomfortable i don't know if that's the type of movie i want to make you know what I mean? Well, well, it, it's interesting because a lot of times discomfort uh, of one kind or another can the two can overlap. That is, mm-hmm. I agree. Yes, it's it's common um, even in. Movies that are ex- that use explicit violence. Um, what what is often done in movies that are that are thoughtful about the use of that kind of material, mm-hmm. um, they will introduce something quite shocking very early on, um, and the purpose of that and what it accomplishes is that the audience is so shocked and so kind of thrown out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Um, The original Dawn of the Dead did this in that first like 10 minutes. I mean, and I saw it when this, when it was first released. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you, if you, if you'd seen it then, you were you were subjected to some uh, just genuinely horrifying violent images and after you know people's heads being blown off and all that kind of stuff which had never been seen on the screen before yeah right you have to remember um, that when you watch these older films yeah yeah and after that it was never that violent again it it never had to be, yeah. Cause because you're, you're living in sort of that that sort that, of shocked, bad taste in your mouth, sort of malay, like almost like this space that they've created that they then tell yeah. the story in. Fascinating. It's just 
you've just you you have created this sense of of tension in the audience yeah where you're, you you've said in essence this is a world where anything can happen at any time yeah any kind of, of shock you, you may at any moment be subjected to just a, a shocking horrendous image so you just better watch yourself because <laughs> yes. don't 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 get comfortable in your seat while you're watching this movie because you never know what's going to hit you. Yeah. So you if you you just it, it it primed the audience. So you you were you were just perpetually in a state of of tension and unease for the rest of the movie because you never knew what was going to hit you. Um and that was that was really an ingenious use of violence. And I think movies that just constantly hit you with, with violence or with, with graphic, you know, graphic imagery, yeah. at a certain point, you, you're just burned out and you just no longer care about it anymore. It's just, it's just more of the same. Yeah, you're exhausted by it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. So um, there are... There are any number of, of of movies that make use of. I mean, I am I'm certainly not someone who says it's like well, obviously the 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 subtle horrors are best because you have a movie like Hereditary, yeah, which yes has has very little in the way of explicit violence, but when that that violence turns explicit. It, it's it's incredibly terrifying. Yeah, and and memorable. Yeah, I mean that's and, you know, that's the part that you remember in the movie. That's the yeah. part. That's the part of that film. Yeah, and and uh, I think and, I mean there are other movies that that ha- that have no explicit violence at all, and that are also terrifying. Very true. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's the, the, it's always always comes down to. What what is the story you're you're looking to tell? Mm. Um, and uh, certainly, the Hellraiser movies have explicit violence, and they're great. And the Haunting is fantastic; has no explicit violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's uh, it follows has these images that are violent and terrifying. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I mean, people forget that. I mean, that movie, they showed you right early on what was going to happen if it caught you. Yeah, with yeah. That, with and that, and that girl and her legs that, broken and her arms broken. Yeah, it's like twisted up like a pretzel. It's like, oh my God. That's why the and, whole movie was scary, was because of that yeah, image. Yeah. 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 So, so, and it's the same thing. You, you, it, it again, it never gets quite that horrifying again, but it 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 starts off just with this kind of slap in the face, violent image. It's fascinating. Um, it's an interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I've felt that subconsciously, but I've never really addressed that uh, verbally. And it's interesting because you're right. It's so good. It's actually really great. Because that, then you're you're really setting the the smell. I always I always call it the smell of a movie. You're setting mm-hmm. the tone for that film instantly by doing that sort of thing. Um, that's awesome, man. 
And and there are movies that I love that do it on smaller scales too. It's like uh, the remake of The Ring, I think, is a fucking great movie. And just just that videotape when she puts that videotape on, and the, specifically, there's a shot of a finger being pushed into a nail, and the nail being pushed off the finger uh, because of yeah. it. And that specifically just leaves that sort of copper taste in your mouth after you after you see that, and then you you're just on fucking edge the whole yeah. time. And again, and again it's the the, the in, injury to the finger. It's just yeah, yeah, it's killing me. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so uh, how how deep did you go with this? Like how did? What was your research uh, for this book? Like, how like, how'd you how'd you dig all this stuff up? Well, um, well, part of the research was my entire life spent watching watching horror movies, <laughs> but um, I some of it, um, some of it was other reading in 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 psychology books and uh, mm-hmm. a woman named Temple Grandin uh, you may be familiar with um, wrote a book um, called Animals in Translation. Uh, they made a movie about her. Um, hmm. But uh, she um, is a, a high-functioning uh, autistic woman mm-hmm. and she wrote um, about the, the similarity of, of human and animal experience. Hmm. And um, one of the things that she she wrote about what she discussed is the way in which animals behave. You know, she she's experienced with cattle, but it's similar with other, with other animals, other mammals. Um, when something uh, unfamiliar is is introduced into their environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she talks, for instance, about like, well, what happens if you got a bunch of cattle in a field, and you were to just like hang a raincoat over the fence, hmm. um, and it's you're introducing something unfamiliar into their environment. Fascinating. And and say, well, they can't ignore it because it's it's something new and 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 unfamiliar, and they can't just trot up to it and investigate it could be dangerous and so they enter into a a state which she referred to as being curiously afraid and so what they will do is they will very very cautiously approach it and they they move closer and closer until they get just within range of this thing they'll reach out with their with their noses their tongues they'll kind of touch it they'll taste it if anything were to happen, if it were to move, they'd run like crazy. But if nothing happens, they'll still taste it. It's like, well, I can't eat it. It's not. It's not harmful. It's nothing. Then they'll just go on back about their business. And the phenomenon of being curiously afraid is essentially exactly the same to scenes that we've seen a hundred times in movies, where you've got the long corridor or the long alley with something uncertain at the end of it. And the emotion, the human emotion of being curiously afraid. And we say, well, why don't you just just get out of there? Just forget about it. But at the same time, we, like they, are desperate to see 
What's behind the half-open door? What's at the end of the door at the alley? We are curiously afraid. And we can't just leave that unfamiliar environment unexplored. We share that with other members of the animal kingdom. We want to go down that alley. And so the person, the movie, and us, we move down the alley. We move down the stairs, down the hallway. Very cautiously, very fearfully, but our curiosity always drives us down until we figure out what's down there. Is it something? Is it nothing? And then once our curiosity is satisfied, oh, okay, it's nothing down there. Then we go on about our business. And it's fascinating that this phenomenon that she's describing in terms of, of animal behavior was clearly something that was applicable to human behavior and specifically human behavior that we see in countless horror movies. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. Something else that was, was fascinating reading, reading about, uh, about certain kinds of dreams that we, uh, that, that seem to be shared by a great many people. Um, and that is this phenomenon of heavy footedness. Um, I mean, and I suspect you've probably had this situation where we're trying to run, but for whatever reason, uh, our feet don't see, are either they're, they're heavy or they seem to be stuck to the ground. We are trying to escape from something and whatever is coming at us um, seems to be able to move very perfectly well, but we can't move. We seem to be stuck. Um, and psychologists don't exactly understand why that seems to be a very common dream. Um, but it's, it's one that many people share. And it's also, again, something that we see translated into countless horror movies, this notion of the slow pursuer and the fast person, the, the fast one who's escaping. You seem to be running as fast as you can, but however fast you run, the slow pursuer keeps gaining on you. It's as if your running isn't, isn't doing anything to get you away from whoever it is that's chasing you. And that seems to run deep into our subconscious, this, this hopeless attempt to escape. Um, again, why, why we seem to have that common dream in the same way that we have the common dream of being late for class, being ill-prepared for an exam, being unable to find your way to a common location. And somehow the streets are unfamiliar. The hallways are unfamiliar. We don't know where we're supposed to go. That, that seems to be an incredibly common dream. We don't know why. Um, it, it just seems to be this, this deeply held anxiety. Um, and again, it's one of those things that, that we can take, ex take it, uh, advantage of in, cre in crafting horrors for the screen. Yeah. I've always been, I mean, one of the things as a director that I'm fascinated by is the subconscious. And I'm always completely fascinated with your mind and your brain. And you've seen uh, my short 12 cam. That was 
completely inspired by my head injury that I had where I cracked my skull and was in intensive care and had a hematoma. And, and so losing control of my, my inner thoughts and my brain and all that kind of stuff, that to me is like this new sort of like landscape that I, I really want to tell horror stories in is, is the mind which I think is really fun and interesting. And it also sort of starts to put its toes in a cosmic terror, which I never mm -hmm. really thought I was a cosmic terror fan, but I guess I am, you know? Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the things uh, that I found interesting um, uh, is one of the chapters has to do with, it, it goes from biology to psychology to culture, and um, but in a weird sort of way, it, it kind of turns back on itself. Um because one of the things that I noticed uh, when I was looking at uh, the fears that, that seem to arise, uh, the, the psychoses in uh, paranoid schizophrenics, huh. that they, they seem to act as, a, as almost a kind of litmus test of the general fears that we find in the culture of the time. That is, that when societies are afraid of um, the devil and possession, that that's the form that paranoid delusions tend to take. When the culture's fears revolve around uh, alien invasions or the CIA doing mind control, that that's what paranoid schizophrenics tend to latch on to. Right. That is, they, they look to what society fears, and it crystallizes in terms of a kind of alternate world reality. That mm -hmm. is, you know, it's like, it's almost like, what is it that what's on Fox News? Oh, Fox News is talking about the CIA mind control. That must be what's happening to me. The CIA is controlling my mind. Or when, you know, they, they go to church and they talk about the devil's possessing you. Oh, that must, must be what happened. The devil's possessing me. Right. I mean, it was, it's, it, it was fascinating because apparently after The Exorcist came out, the movie came out and there were tons of other movies that followed it in this wake about possession. The number of cases of reported cases of people who thought that they were possessed went through the roof. Huh. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, and it's not like they were lying. They believed that they were possessed, yeah. but the it was, it was a response to, you know, the, the public mind being full of ideas about possession. Yeah. And they, they were, they were, they were keying off of that. Huh. And, and, and they, the same way that when, when the, the public mind is full of ideas about the CIA spying on people and mind control and all that sort of thing, then the, the people who's, who are open to that kind of influence respond to that right right and and into the into uh, into that kind of of uh, conspiracy theory and right now unfortunately the world seems to be full of these ideas about conspiracy theories and so they right. they respond to it appropriately it's fascinating it's it's really interesting man like i'm 
I like. I, I'm very fascinated. I I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, and I want to because um, I just our conversation alone has got me completely thinking differently about a bunch of different aspects of horror cinema, um, which I find to be very inspiring because uh, it you know you're always trying to come up with new ideas. You're always trying to look for a new place for an idea and. Uh, I feel like if I go down this rabbit hole, there's going to be something interesting that comes out of it. So, I, dude, I completely appreciate you being on the show today. We, at this point, I'm going to have to wrap it up. Um, but uh, where can okay. people, where can people yeah. get your books on Amazon? Right? Um, okay, it's available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or they can order it from uh, Michael Weiss Productions, MWP.com. Nice. Um, and uh, uh, and. If they read it and like it, uh, we can always uh, be nice to point, uh, put a review on uh, Amazon. That's very helpful to us. Um, and uh, again, it's for people who are looking to write horror screenplays or write horror of any kind or are just interested in horror. So, Dude, um, I love it. I love it, man. And and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the show. I like the fact that we're very much the same kind of nerd when it comes to this, yeah, well, which is great. And... Uh, so and uh, it's great season to be a horror fan because it's yes. horror, horror movies in the air. Yes, so. sir. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Neil, thanks so much for being on the show, buddy. It was uh, it was my pleasure. So uh, great talking to you. There it is. Today's episode in the can. Hopefully, you guys are feeling a bit more in the holiday spirit. Hopefully, you guys are uh, inspired to go scare your brothers and sisters and family or sneak up on your girlfriend and, and tease her. It is the best time of year for that. Um, and uh, I, I'm feeling inspired after this conversation. Uh, I just am constantly looking for the right motivation to write something new. And so I think this will help hope this helps you thank you everybody for listening to the show and i want to remind you if you're a newcomer uh and our amount of episodes feel daunting because it is right because we're pushing like 215 16 or something 17 maybe um and you're like fuck do i just go all the way back to the beginning well if you're a true fan if you're a true fan you do but no judgments i know how short everybody's attention span is um, maybe you just want to listen to all the episodes with directors. Maybe you want to listen to all the episodes with actors only. Maybe you want to curate your experience. Uh, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've done all the work. <laughs> all the episodes are curated by subject material. Um, I also have like a top 25, top 30 episode section, I think. I have to update it because there's been a whole lot of new killer episodes that aren't listed there yet. Um, but that's the place to go. It's also a great place to go uh, for the supplemental material for each show. I try to put up images uh, that I get from our guests. I'll put links to their trailers. I'll put links to their stuff. It's all there. Inlovewiththeprocess.com is the place to hang out and to be while listening to the show. Um, that's it. That's it. That's the episode today. Hope you guys liked it. I, uh, I appreciate everybody, and I appreciate everybody that listens to the show, and I've seen the numbers. The numbers stay pretty fucking consistent. I just looked at our overall numbers. It is October, 
and we've already crossed 215% from last year's listens. That's huge. Huge. Because last year we crushed last year. So this year we're on such an epic scale. And so uh, I couldn't have done it without all of you listening to the show. And you guys uh, give me something else to do with my life <laughs> while waiting around for movie shit to work. Um, and, it, and I really do appreciate it. It gives me time to talk to strangers. Gives me time to learn new things along with you. I feel like I'm building my toolbox. I'm telling you, when I was on set with that crew last week, there were so many tricks and techniques that I had just talked about with cinematographers on this show that immediately went into play. Immediately. I, w- I was using gear that I had never used before with a team that had never used the gear either. And we got on set and we had shot one off in an hour and a half. And it looked gorgeous. So it's working, man. Just because we're sitting and talking on a microphone doesn't mean we're not absorbing things. You can take these tools and take these tricks and put them into play and put them into practice. Um, So, hope it works for you. That's it. You know the deal. I'll see you next Tuesday.